0: underground out loud
1: you're listening to the poet cast project Episode 5 Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the PoetCast Project, coming to you still slightly woozy from the dizzy heights of the previous episode. I've no idea how we can top that, really, because it's an absolute cracker, but here we are in another attempt to try and blow your mind a little. I'm Missy Demina, and as usual, I'm here with the Irish Brad Pitt of Airwaves, Eamon Sose. And the man who just managed to dive a Hurricane Dorian away from his home with one steely-glazed look, Daniel Christensen. Mm-hmm. Coming up on the show today, we're going to be launching a brand new feature on the show, the Reading List. And our first guest for this is Wally Roo 92 who won the forum competition we ran in order to be our first guest. And I can't wait to share it with you. Eamon, what's coming up on the show today for you?
2: Well, you were saying, how are we going to top last month? Well, I got someone to top last month. As you probably know, later on, I will be talking to the lovely Missy, Demeanour. We'll be getting up close and personal and deep, very, very deep. I've done Missy very deep. Uh, Steady. There's another t-shirt for the collection. Uh, that's one you don't want to miss. Daniel.
3: Ow woo, werewolves in London. Um... <laughs> All right.
2: Sorry, Daniel. I was just thinking to myself when I introduced you there. You're probably one of the only people in America that didn't get blown by Dorian.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, had. How stressful. does that feel? Oh, it feels good. Very good to still have a home.
2: Anyway, go on. Sorry, continue.
3: <laughs> okay, if you're ready.
2: Well, the thought struck me, so I thought, fuck it, I'll strike you.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, the riptides flow and storm winds blow, but as the great man Freddie Mercury once said, the show must go on. So in that indomitable spirit, I've belted on my big boy pants and otherwise gird my loins to bring you a chilling selection by Jade Pandora in this episode Spotlight that you won't want to miss. So put on your thinking caps and sit back. Let's kick out the clutch and throw this poetic engine into high gear. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how it's done.
2: (laughs) Very good. There it's we like go. All right, Fucking show off. Nobody likes a fucking show off. <laughs> there
3: you go.
1: Legends from Ink to Airwaves with Eamon Soze.
2: The English are never as shameful as when we're trying to find candles during a power cut. When we fumble through the kitchen drawer full of crap, we keep for emergencies such as this. Us Brits have one morris we'll have, you know. This is the country of Churchill, of never backing down, of make do and mend, until the electric drops and we're sitting here realising how vulnerable we are without a fanfare. Watching Brunel turn in his grave and Shakespeare, well, those comedies came from somewhere. Hello, and you're very welcome to this, the fifth ever episode of the Poet Task Project. I'm Eamon Sose, and that piece of poetic excellence was written and posted by Mrs. Demeanour. And oh boy, have we the light of good luck, Sean, uh, this month, because we happen to have Missy right here at Legends from Ink to Airwaves. Dun, 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 cue music. Uh, Missy, honour to do you, and of course, you are very welcome here, and how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, thank you. I'm um, not long from work, so I'm happy to sit down with some tea, which is pretty much what you're doing, I think. Lovely stuff. And Exactly. To be honest, if I stand on the coast and just shout really hard, you can probably hear me. So we might have to try that as an interview at some point. I
2: don't think you need to go anywhere near the coast, Missy. I can hear you have that kind of voice. <laughs> um. <laughs> like a fog <laughs> Where did that come from? Missy demeanour. Mis-
1: misdemeanour. Um, yeah. Just because it sounds like the word misdemeanour.
2: Um, ah, you know what? I knew it fucking sounded like something. I did, I swear. <laughs>
1: It's because I yeah. I hate I fucking hate Miss Sub like as a username, so I kind of disassociate myself from it now and say Missy because everyone's always said Missy, but then I changed it because I just I just thought it sound it was when I made my Facebook account, and um, I thought I just needed a second name, so I just changed it to Demeanor just because it sounded like misdemeanor.
2: Right. But yeah. Then, because there is a word Demeanor as well, isn't there? Yeah. Like, it means, I don't know, the way you're standing or the way you're, your attitude or something like that, isn't it?
1: Misdemeanour is like the opposite of that, you know, like a bit cheeky and doing wrong. <laughs> so I quite liked it.
2: I wouldn't be caught dead doing a misdemeanour. It's, it's a felony or nothing. Misdemeanours. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Ain't Got Nothing, published 17th of April 2017. What was the drive behind you writing that one?
1: I get inspiration from the most mundane stuff a lot of the time. And this poem came to light because I don't know if any other countries do this, but it seems like the English always have this one drawer in the house that they shove all of their crap that won't go anywhere else in. Like batteries and torches and food bags. And nobody talks about the crap drawer. It's like when you're a woman sort of over 30 and you suddenly have a secret favorite ring on the hob that you never really talk about. I mean, I was getting really stressed um, with my crap drawer because it's just full of electrical tape and light bulbs. And it just made me write this poem about how the British in all of this pomp and circumstance in this country of Shakespeare and Churchill and all these amazing figures, how we are almost cartoon characters when it comes to actually reacting to stuff.
2: Now, I thought about this myself for a bit because my mother is English. Uh, uh-huh. We we have um, we have one of them drawers, you know. Uh, and I wondered <laughs> was it was it you know an English thing. Um, but then there's one of them drawers here. And to be quite honest, there's been one of them drawers in nearly every house I've been in. Always one of them drawers. So maybe it's not so much a British thing as a king I don't well, know.
1: Maybe other countries can leave us a comment about whether they have a crap drawer. <laughs>
2: Because mm-hmm, I'm really mm-hmm.
1: interested. Uh
2: well, I mean, put that to the people there listening. If you have a draw for the crap in your <laughs> kitchen, uh put it on a uh, self-addressed postcard and send it to yourself. Now, there's certainly no contempt within the poem. a little bit of light prodding, yes, um, but a fair bit of love too. Um would you consider yourself to be very British?
1: I would in the sense that I drink a truly insane amount of tea. So I'm kind of a parody of an English person, if I'm honest. But um, I definitely have the wicked sense of humour and that gets me through the day. And it seems to be the British way to almost make light of things in a way. I mean, you only need to look at how the British people are reacting to Brexit right now. Because literally the only thing we've got going for us at the moment, in amongst the chaos, is you know good cheese and nectar points. If i you know everything else is utter futility at the minute. I mean we've got Boris Johnson who kind of looks like somebody had a scientific accident and injected yeti DNA into a flan, and he's kind of leading us through Brexit, and we're just the, the laughing stock of the world right now. And you know, it just hurts a bit, I think, because, you know, I love this country and people didn't really fight and die in wars for this division. So it's just really sad.
2: Well, you know, when, when we talk about Britishness now, are, are we talking like would you have had an interest in, let's say, the the last couple of weddings and the, and the babies and stuff like that being born? To, to, oh, to, do you know dying? what?
1: I'm not really a royalist and I did watch the wedding. I watched, uh, I watched Harry and Meghan's wedding only purely because of the, um, the preacher that they had on it. I don't know if you saw it, but it was absolutely amazing. <laughs> it was like a comedy sketch. It was absolute gold. I, I think I watch it because I'm nosy and that's half the reason why English people watch royal weddings and things like that. It's just they have something to talk about at the
2: checkout. Oh, of course um, what does it mean to be British.
1: What does it mean to be British? It's just complaining about the weather until we die, really. I think that's what it means to be British.
2: Um, (laughs) Speaking of Britishness and poetry, I happen to know you're in possession of a book of poetry written by a relative of yours. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when you discovered it, you were quite chuffed. Do you still have it? Have you read it? I did.
1: Um, It was my uncle, actually. He actually left me quite a lot of... um, Notebooks, But I knew that he wrote poetry and there was quite a lot of scuffling going on within his family when my aunt died a couple of years ago about, you know, who would get all the furniture and the good stuff and all the better items in the house. But all I really wanted was his notebooks, which I got. But he certainly got a lot of comfort out of writing and the natural world. Definitely he was a twitcher um you know he was never happier than being in the shed with a pair of binoculars and looking at birds and and stuff so yeah he wrote almost exclusively rhyming poetry but some of it is just really witty and wry and in a way i suppose it has shaped some of the tongue-in-cheek way that i write to some degree i mean i have one here like do you mind if i read it
2: (laughs) oh please do please do
1: awesome Uh, So I'm going to read this one, uh, which will actually show that bluntness is really just a family trait. So (laughs) um, there's no title to this one. It was just literally in the cover of a notebook. And it says, Dear Sir, please find enclosed herewith a tiny pot of ash. It's all I have to send you as you've taken all our cash. For the last 30 years, I've paid my tax, but still, you want even more. It seems to me your life's career was to keep my family poor. But now I'm dead, and yet this is me in my crematory urn. So take however much you like, it's no longer my concern. I only ask you remove my lid outside when a high wind blows. For my last wish is simply this, to get right up your fucking nose.
2: (laughs) Fucking hell, that's... uh... (laughs) <laughs> so what, what kind of hero was that?
1: Yeah, would have probably been about ten, fifteen years ago. All right. So yeah, he died reasonably young. I think he was uh, just at the end of his fifties.
2: So when you found that and you started digging through it and you were reading away, um, did it give you any kind of uh, kind of validation for your own endeavours in into poetry, into writing?
1: It did, because reading the whole collection, I mean, there was quite a few notebooks, really made me realise that poets all essentially have this same kind of mindset in that they write a lot of the time to process their own thoughts and feelings about the world. And I think that's what he was doing, especially. He was trying to process thoughts and feelings and moments, and it was his kind of go-to place. So, if anything, it just sort of allowed me not to feel quite so alone in my weird little writing hobby.
2: Hmm. And it's in in your blood. Now, would that be on your mother's side or your father's side?
1: Um, that was my
2: mother's sister's husband. Yeah, by marriage. (laughs) All right. Uh, Manchester. The bomb, uh, bomb went off there uh, not, not too long ago. I remember your reaction. You were you, you, you kind of hit you a little bit. Um, do you feel under attack?
1: The night the bomb went off, I was actually in bed. And I'd just woken up with a start because I, I just felt kind of odd. I do often quite get feelings about stuff. I don't, I don't know if that's why I woke up, but I've got no idea. But I just did. I picked up my phone, which... I normally do when I can't sleep and it was just pure shock because people had texted me like oh my god have you seen this and all the news notifications were going off and it was just really surreal and I felt really bad because we'd actually been in the arena the week before because we'd taken my stepson who was quite, you know younger at the time um, and we'd gone to see Ed Sheeran who is not my first choice in music but he was actually quite good and it was a completely sold out show And the floor was packed solid and it took an age to get up and down the steps in the arena. And it really shit me up because I remember turning to my husband and specifically saying, imagine if a bomb went off in here, nobody could get out. And and I was just watching people just sort of be crushed. And it was just haunting when I saw the news. But it did affect me a lot. And part of my OCD, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, um, has always been very perturbed by terrorism since the twin towers and i was actually seeing somebody at the time who was rather close to the tube bombings in london so terrorism has always sort of been in the back of my mind and i know it shouldn't and that the british will be you know all like keep calm and carry on and all that shit but i fucking worry about that stuff you know i just can't help it
2: i'll tell you what it was in london in 1990 Uh, i think it was on the tube i was going to work Mm. and we're going through st packers i think and the chill stopped, and there was everybody was told to get off the train and, and get out, get the fuck out. There was a a, a package, you know. Um, I remember that. I still remember that now to this day, nineteen ninety. Oh, it was twenty seven, twenty seven years ago, twenty nine. It's it's well, I mean, it it ties into the to the whole Britishness thing, you know. To, is that something that you that you kind of constantly think about is it you know is it a conscious thing do you look around for packages do you look around for beards or
1: do you know i
2: actually do and it's
1: really i the thing is i feel bad doing it and i think that with all this kind of terrorism stuff it's kind of forced people to be judgmental and even mm -hmm. though i hate myself for thinking that way sometimes when i do get on the tube i fucking hate the tube (laughs) anyway because it's just so claustrophobic but I've definitely. Oh, it's a horrible
2: thing, yeah. yeah. Oh my
1: God, it's awful. But you know, I've definitely been known to see someone in my eyeliner, not like the look of them, get off the train and just wait for the next one, just because it makes me feel better.
2: Do you think it helps to see the funny side of things?
1: Absolutely, and it's very much how I deal with things to a large extent. It's definitely a side I bring out in my poetry regularly as well, and I have this horrible habit of making dark things funny, purely because there's just so much negativity in the world. And I think sometimes all you can do as a response is laugh at it. And some things just, to be honest, are so shit. They deserve to be laughed at. I think we owe ourselves to laugh at things.
2: How would you describe your sense of humour? Because it's a bit bit out there, isn't it?
1: (laughs) My sense of humour has always been very odd and very dry. And it was always rather inappropriate. And kind of got me into trouble growing up quite a lot. Unfortunately, I also have probably one of the worst nervous laughs that you will ever know in your life. I mean, to illustrate this point, I've checked I can tell this story, by the way, before anybody sort of writes in and says that I'm laughing at the disabled or anything. But I'm quite good friends with David McLeod.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, David is a amputee by the as I'm sure many of you know. And he was showing me these pictures of his amputation wounds when they were healing, yeah. which he just happened to have. And my reaction to those photographs was nothing short of biblical, because I felt so squeamish and so uncomfortable and so nervous. I was laughing my fucking tits off.
2: <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> yes. Over a cup so, of tea, you well, out here. Exactly. Oh, what do you think of that?
1: So there I am on the phone with somebody that I kind of, you know, love dearly as a friend in absolute hysterics over somebody's amputation wounds. I mean, I couldn't even fucking breathe. It was just laughing that much, but it was just pure nerves. And that's how I react. But, you know, mm. on the flip side, I'm really scared that somebody's going to, you know, tell me some devastating news, like they've got cancer or something one day and right. I'm just going to burst into hysterics. But that's just how I react to stress.
2: Um I mean, we're only only here a few minutes, but what does it feel like to be on the other side of an interview now?
1: It is terrifying. Uh, Like, I wasn't sort of expecting how vulnerable I feel. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of getting a bit of a dose of my own medicine at the moment. (laughs) So -hmm. maybe this is kind of revenge. I don't know.
2: I've done this on radio. I got I got interviewed there uh, a couple. Of, I, I, I may have I may have uh, maybe gave you the recording, but yeah, it is. It's pretty. It's a little bit daunting. Now. I suppose after the first maybe ten minutes, it, it starts to get okay, very well or whatever. Um, <laughs> See, I'm started fucking
1: laughing now. <laughs> Move on. <laughs>
2: um, on the bottom of the poem, that poem I just read out, there was a, there was a kind of a note there. Seventeen out of thirty. What was that about?
1: So this was actually an entry. Um, I've taken part in National Poetry Writing Month for several years but I've always kind of done it off my own back because I'm kind of a lone wolf so this was part of one of the years that I took part so this was like 17 out of the 30 so that's what that's about
2: <laughs> all right okay the the next poem uh that you chose um I'll read this one um, okay at 23 I had a nervous breakdown and I'm still not sure what the fuck happened. I remember walking barefoot, I remember car headlights, I remember the horns upon my father's head. I can still envision the shrinking walls, my mother on the phone to the doctor tapping her left foot against the telephone table. They prescribe you things you generally can't pronounce, make you fill out strange forms that ask if you've thought of suicide in the past week, and you lie and say no because you still retain some fucking dignity even though it's been there every day, every hour, every waking moment During therapy you tell them that you ran and you didn't go home You tell them of sleeping under the iron bridge You tell them about that man You show them his burn marks and scars up and down your body You show them where the claw hammer went in They jot down illegible scribbles about your fear of going outside and how your world has gone down the proverbial shitter and they look at you, they fucking look at you like you're a pot plant or a ceramic jug incapable of response and somewhere, in what's left of that rotting carcass of your bones you remember him you remember his weight grinding your soul to dust you remember the way your name left his lips like crushed chalk you remember him, you remember it all and you clutch yourself An empty chalice before the hanged man, and the deadpan woman making strange notes on your death. Fair to say it's a little darker than the first one uh, that we read. I've read this particular one a heap of times since you posted it. Um, What struck me first was, you know, the tiny things, the little things that, you know, that you remembered from that. Your mother's left toe tapping the table, the car headlights, and stuff like that. It happens to be one of the most harrowing experiences I've read ever in poetry. Um, Is it all, even now, even still now, you know, some years after, still fresh in your head?
1: It is. And um, I think in those little details, especially when you're going through something like that, seem to be amplified. So there, there are things that I can remember specifically about that time. And, you know, this poem is really personal to me. So, you know, I've never really heard it being read out loud before by someone else. So it kind of like hit me a little bit.
2: I meant to ask you that too, but I mean, I'll, I'll go on to that in a minute. Sorry for interrupting you. Go, go ahead.
1: No, no, no. Um, so this poem is actually set in therapy because I have an obsessive compulsive disorder. And it kind of went off the scale after this incident and... They put me on a course of cognitive behavioral therapy, which in a way is even more harrowing than the event because they kind of make you relive it by saying it out loud over and over again. And they kind of like force you to accept that it happened. And I fucked that off as soon as I could because it was just one of the worst experiences of my life because they make you relive it over and over and it was just not good for me. However, writing about it on my own terms and in my own time and in my own sort of comfort zone has done more for me than any kind of therapy ever did. So,
2: Did writing it down, and I suppose, more importantly, posting it, you know, posting it for for all eyes to see or whatever, to, you know, judging eyes or, you know, that kind of thing. Did it do anything at all to alleviate the burden of it? I mean, I'm I'm sure there must be that burden all the time, you know. (laughs)
1: I think it did, because I think one of the powers of of poetry is that once you get a pen in your hand, it gives you permission to say what you need to say. And that's one of the great vulnerabilities about writing that I genuinely love is the fact that we almost give ourselves this permission to be vulnerable and to let things out that we perhaps couldn't normally say out loud. So, yeah, it's done a tremendous amount for me I started this thread in the forum once about whether poetry is um, therapy or an art form, which is still going every now and then. <laughs> mm. But, um, you know, for me, it's definitely a therapy, a thousand percent.
2: How did it feel to to hear that, you know, me reading that out to you? Or, well, not to you specifically, but just me reading it, your words. How did that feel?
1: It was an interesting dynamic to hear a man reading it. And that's what's hit me immediately. Um, not in a bad way, but it's just a, a different perspective, I think. Mm. So yeah,
2: I'm, I've got a bit of a lump in my throat. Actually, <laughs> I'm
1: just a
0: bit.
2: Oh. I ask because there uh, maybe maybe not maybe not last month and month before that I had Hemi here, and I read I, I suppose an equally not along the exact same lines, but an equally kind of uh, you know very very personal poem uh, to oh. him, and he he had the same kind of I, odd. I suppose would be the best word to, to, to put it, you know, an odd feeling uh, when I read it to him, you know. Yeah. And I took him back a tiny bit, you know. So I was wondering, I was curious there. So, looking back, and I, and I won't hold you on this subject too long, you know, because I know <laughs> it's... Um, um, looking back, what would have been the first kind of red flag moments before it became kind of painfully obvious that, you know, this is fucking, this is toxic, this is abusive?
1: I think it was the pressure to do things that I perhaps wasn't ready for at the age that I was. You know, for example, there was quite a lot of pressure to move in. And looking back on that, that was, you know, feeding his control. And that maybe I was just a bit blind to that at the time and a bit naive. And after that, it just got very verbal and psychological and, you know, and then it got more physical, which I'm not going to delve into too much, but it was just this kind of constant grinding down this constant humiliation and making me feel like I wasn't good enough and not capable of doing things and in the end I mean you just it was just so much that I started doubting my own mind and even my own fucking sanity on some days and I was just constantly torn between not wanting to go home and I'd quite often sleep out so I didn't have to and that would cause more arguments and belittling and it was just this unbelievably vicious circle yeah it just right. wasn't wasn't a fun time
2: um well i'll tell you one just one more question there that, that I have. um did it take much for you to give those relationships another try after that i mean i understand you're married now and you're very kind of very happily married now um did it take much for you, for you to kind of get back into that zone
1: it, it did. I mean, when I first met my husband, we actually started off as friends before it developed into something more. And um, we actually met online as well. But, um, you know, despite myself still being quite sort of fucked up from things for a number of years, and maybe I still am in a lot of ways, you know, I'm obviously a lot more balanced now, but I'm still quite sort of messed up from it. And, but, you know, I knew instantly that my husband was different. And to this day, my husband has always been sort of extremely patient with me, despite my faults and mistakes and choices I've made along the way. But it, it does take an awful lot for me to trust people. And that's not just men. I mean, you know, I guess a lot of people think that I'm quite sort of anti-men by now, but I'm just, I'm really not. And some of my dearest friends are now men's. But, you know, yeah, I've, I've come to realise that, especially over the last few years, that my husband really is... A, a good person and he makes me a better person and yeah he's my hero you know get a fucking sick bucket if you like
2: it's fine (laughs) all right well i'll tell you many thanks now for for getting in 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 with that little bit you know so all right i'll lighten up a little bit here uh this part of the show i'm gonna scour the archives well i've already done it um and I'll the ask a question thread and put five of them to you see see what you come up with I went back to 2013. So, um, first one, how many countries have you visited? And this is a dystopian melody. Oh,
1: um, France. Faster. Hol- <laughs> France, Holland, Italy, Germany, and Ireland. Mainly because I'm terrified of fucking flying.
2: <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> we in Ireland. I knew I, knew I heard you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, that's where I was.
2: Do you believe in Jesus? Uh, like, parent. Oh,
1: God. God, like, fucking literally. I mean, it's a multi-layered question.
2: I suppose, do you believe that he, he was a man kind of thing that, you know, I'm not, uh, maybe it's not about, you know, did he turn water to wine and all that kind of carry on, but do, do you believe that he was here?
1: I believe and acknowledge that Jesus existed, but I believe he was a prophet rather than the son of God. So I don't acknowledge Jesus as the saviour, despite being raised that way. But I do actually believe in God, but probably just define it differently to many people because I'm pantheistic. So I believe that God exists in all things and everybody, rather than one sort of absolute supreme man on a cloud in the sky.
2: What objects are on the left-hand side of you right now, uh, boy, Violet?
1: Oh, fucking hell, this is sexy. Right, I see... <laughs> A bottle of cough syrup, there's a hair tie and a packet of menthol chewing
2: gum because I'm getting over the flu. (laughs) All right, all right, chewing gum. Oh, and finally, when was the last time you did something for the first time? There's no name attached to that one. Last week, actually,
1: I do pyrography on the side, which is basically burning patterns into wood and things. And that's what my tagline on the DU is about when I've got, I'm a pretty arsonist. And that's what that's in reference to. But um, I got to burn a deer skull, which was a really interesting craft experience, you know, working with something that was once alive. And bone is just a really interesting thing to work with. It's probably a bit macabre, but it was it was interesting.
2: OK, thanks very much for that now. (laughs) Um, See, it's not as painful as you thought it was going to be. I enter the chemist, clutching the script I collect every month and hand it to her. I think of the irony of collecting antidepressants from a woman so miserable. Then I look at the buffet of drugs in drawers behind the counter, labelled and filed, all belonging to your mothers, uncles, nieces, telling their stories of pain. My thoughts are shattered by the tinkling of the doorbell. There stands the sorry state of a man. He smells bad. I consciously find myself not breathing through my nose. His clothes are three sizes too big and he doesn't walk, he exists. frame for dirty clothes, grey in the morning sun. I know he's there for methadone as I watch the stone pharmacist give him up his cup of sickly green in the middle of the room, his body unclenching as he tips his head back and the world is stilled. When he leaves the smell remains. I hold my own order, my whole body tense, knowing I've been taking pills since I was 18, thinking of the last time I tried to stop them, casually walking into traffic, in some bizarre peace pact with my own suicide, and it bothers me, like no other day, as I live heavy, with the stench of addiction stinging my nostrils, the spirit of a death wish with no earthly place to go. The Methadone Kid there posted 29th of August 2017. I have to say I can relate on a number of levels here. Um, Indeed, there was a spell some years back. It could have been me you were observing. You prefer few under the observational banner. Is it something which you've learned over the years or is it more a natural kind of trait?
1: Definitely natural. I can sit for hours and people watch and it's one of my favourite pastimes. So I love telling stories in my poems, and it's something that I've always worked very hard on. So to try and tell stories is another way of me processing what I've seen during the day. And I think you connect with the reader
2: on a very human level that way, when you're actually projecting something that you've seen. So you're there, you're standing in the canvas watching this scene go down. Did did you get an actual urge there and then to write about it? Or was it something maybe that stuck in your head? When you went home or something?
1: I mean, like all things that spur me to write, I actually first got really angry about it. And then I wrote about it. (laughs) I mean, there's this saying that says, you know, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And that's me all over. I was kind of so annoyed about how I felt at the time. I had to write to process my thoughts a little. So that's what I did.
2: So... Take us through the modus operandi, as it were, then, of, of how you translate your thoughts of that scene onto, onto a bit of, Do you use music or anything like that to, to help, or...?
1: No, not really. It, I think it was just, you know, I was trying to translate the area that I live in. So I live in what many would consider to be quite a poor area. In places, um, it's not to say where I live is bad because I've obviously bought a house here, but there's a lot of unemployment, there's a lot of people on benefits, there's a lot of single mothers, and like a lot of places now, there's quite a large drug presence to the point that it's very noticeable. In a sense, there's always a queue at the post office on Dole day, um, and there's always somebody who sheepishly comes into the chemist to stand behind a screen that might as well not be there because you can see and hear fucking everything. So I was actually down at the chemist picking up my prescription for antidepressants, which these particular ones have been on for like the last 11 years and have really sort of leveled me out and allowed me to function in some sort of normal life. So when I wrote The Spirit of a Death Wish with No Earthly Place to Go, that's so often how I feel about my anxiety and the depression that I'm so often sort of smothered by. And I think you know, writing a poem like that is a direct influence to the fact that sometimes I just feel like a ghost. But I guess that's the isolation of mental illness sometimes.
2: Well, what's your relationship with prescription drugs now?
1: Like I said, I've been on antidepressants probably since my late teens um, to deal with my crippling anxiety. Um, I've always been extremely neurotic growing up. I don't remember ever not having anxiety. And it genuinely floors me a lot of the time. And even on the prescription drugs on some days, it still does. But I have this very kind of love-hate relationship with my pills because while I'm grateful that they've leveled me enough to function and have some sort of, you know, decent quality of life, I also hate that I'm on them because I feel so much more positive and happy in my life now than I did. And sometimes I feel like they don't have a place in my world anymore. You know, I did try and come off them once several years ago, and even though I came off them really slowly and I was under supervision from the doctor and stuff, I literally nearly walked in front of the bus. I don't think I've ever felt as bad as I did in my whole life, and it was just not a good time. So I actually asked them to put me back on them, because if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix
0: it. Mm. So,
1: But it was just awful. I couldn't keep food down. I was shivering. I was shaking. It was just – it was like I was – going cold turkey or something it was just absolutely ridiculous so I yeah but,
2: I mean you, you're you're kind of getting on aren't you I mean you like I'm not I'm not going to say you're ecstatically happy or anything like that i mean, but you've <laughs> bought a house you have a job you know you have yeah. a husband um you've all these kind of I mean you must have a whole music shop in your in your house now at this <laughs> stage with musical instruments hobbies all over the place so it's not necessarily that you're just existing or just kind of functioning. I mean, you're functioning fairly well, aren't you, would you say?
1: Definitely, 100%. And I, you know, I'll know, I definitely say that right now is the happiest I've probably ever been in my life. And you know, things are going very well on the surface. I have a nice stable home. You know, I've got a roof over my head. I've got a nice stable job. And to that extent, I'm very happy. I've got a support network now, which I've never had before. But I think the thing is with um, with mental illness is that despite all that, it can still make you feel like you're not worthy of these things. And right. sometimes, you know, I, I feel guilty that I've got them almost. Right. Um, like
2: I don't deserve them. When was the last time you wanted to get stoned or drunk?
1: Um... Well, not stoned, really. I guess that doesn't really have a place (laughs) in my world. But um, drunk because I used it to the extreme as a coping mechanism when I was living with my ex. And I felt like I was very dependent on it at one point. So I think about drinking a lot um, pretty much every day. But I barely drink at all anymore. In fact, I've replaced all my alcoholic drinks with tea. So I drink about 40 mugs of tea a day now. So I don't have time to drink booze anymore because I'm always in the bog, sort of like pissing my tea away.
2: So. Right. Um, oh, while I have you here, the podcast, mm-hmm. what we're doing here now, what goes into setting something like that up? A lot.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I guess I started thinking about something like this about a year ago. And then the thought kept nagging me every now and then. And I was like, oh, can I do this? And I just didn't know how to go about it. And it wasn't until I sort of took the plunge and shared, I think I shared the idea with you, and I believe UM at the time, that I really had any kind of backbone of a plan. Thankfully, my husband has this um, deeply sort of technical background and was able to help me with a lot of the technical side of things.
2: But round of applause
1: there everybody <laughs> he is literally the tech support so that's good but um now that it's been going on for a little while the technical side of things has become quite you know it's become a lot easier so i think i, I did underestimate the time that it takes sometimes from the editing to running comps to finding participants to trying to arrange interviews it is a lot of work which i'm sure you'll agree <laughs> but mm-hmm. um I like to think it contributes to a positive atmosphere and I think that's all I have ever really wanted from this venture. It's just unity and
2: bringing the community together. That's literally the goal. So. All right. Um, five months in, how happy are you so far?
1: I'm really happy with how it sounds so far. And I think from three people who don't really have any kind of technical training or particular expertise, I mean, apart from, you know, who's dabbled with radio and interviewing and stuff, I'm really proud of what we've achieved and I only hope that people get behind it and that it grows in the future and gets more people involved.
2: It's sort of, has a, it sort of um, it's having a kind of a steady growth, you know, each time. Uh, where would you like to be in, say, two years' time? Uh, that's to say, what, what, what would you like to have included or have you thought about that at all?
1: I'd really like the social media side to grow. Um, because I know that that can get a lot of people in. And that would also bring people to the site as well, which which I'd love to see. A couple of things for the future. I mean, I'd really like to get the groups involved more. I I know we've talked more about trying to get more debate and talking in the show and guests and things like that. And I think that's a direction that I'd really personally like to go in. Um, But I also hope that a few more people come to Spoken Word through this. So I'm really hoping that we can grow that area of the site as well, because sometimes that's a little bit neglected. Yeah, I'm hoping that people sort of begin some of their poetry journeys with us. That would be really nice.
2: All right, now the this is the final poem that you that you picked. When Alice Gray tore nails to the nub, when Elizabeth the voice was sent to die, when the Bullcock family ripped into clung silently and only sighed. They did not beat their heavy chests, or puffed their hatred over the moor, tall as oaks that would be their death, chanting out to the wind for evermore. For now we die upon the hill, and to those who heard their bitter lies, lean not against your own understanding, and turn your hearts towards the skies. These witches and these cunning folk knew the way of the land, knew a thing or two about medicine. And the goddess on which we stand. But oh, there's God. a wily wren inside my throat. And there are snakes within my lair. And I am of the cauldron born. And wind's blood drenches my hair. And I am every daughter of the moon. Who has ever had to swing. Beneath the justice of the trees. And I'm not afraid to sing. I am willing to die upon the hill. And to those who spout their bitter lies. I trust my instinct and understanding. Long may women born need starry skies. From the tarot series number 14, uh, The Fairlit, how many in that series? There's
1: 22 poems in that series um, that I wrote at another time that I took part in National Poetry Writing Month on my own accord. That are all based on the 22 cards of the major arcana in a tarot deck. Right. Which, are all, which are basically all the picture cards.
2: Where did your interest in such things come from?
1: Right. <laughs> I have what I can only describe as a complete obsession with the history of witchcraft. If I was going to go on mastermind, 17th century witchcraft with a thousand percent be my mastermind topic. Uh, and it's a really interesting social experiment being interested in something like that because... Whenever you tell people, you kind of watch them back away slowly. It's fucking great. But I've never lived in a place where there wasn't a witchcraft history. So I now have access to Pendle, which is where all of the witches (coughs) named in in that poem came from. And that's where a very infamous English witch child occurred in the 1600s. So I've walked up Pendle Hill. I visited the castle where they were incarcerated dragged my husband around another bloody castle dungeon. <laughs> but it's got to the stage where he just sort of smiles and nods now because I get so excited about history that he just kind of glazes over. My idea of sort of a perfect night, I love nothing better than coming home on a rainy day and lighting some candles and sitting down with a cup of tea or I can just sort of vegetate with a history documentary like fucking Nuremberg Trials or like how the Colosseum was built or something. That's just oh, heaven yeah. for me.
2: But do you have any interest in, in other kind of occulty kind of stuff?
1: Um, definitely Druidry,
2: which I was sort of
1: just getting to.
2: <laughs> yeah, Druidry, on the other hand,
1: is a very different kettle of fish.
2: Are we talking dress up in, are we talking put costumes on and the whole Cheban kind of thing? Yes, we are.
1: Um, I, I do have um, a ritual robe. Um, which I kind of ummed and ahed about, but somebody once described the ritual robe as as putting basically you're taking off your worldly clothes and you're putting on something that says this is sacred space, this means business, and it was very very important for me when I chose my ritual robe because um, obviously you know there's no sort of specific uniform, but it was really important for me to not not have one with a hood um because i didn't want to be basically associated with the clan <laughs>
2: oh okay
1: right. um oh, I, I probably would
2: have picked the hood now because uh, I,
1: <laughs> I guess i was always sort of quite aware of the druids but i used to live sort of just outside glastonbury for a number of years and for anyone that sort of doesn't know what glastonbury is it's kind of like the witchy new age capital of england but there's a huge pagan community down there and I used to see the druids in their white robes sort of traipsing up and down Glastonbury Tor around solstice time and distinctly thinking, Oh my god, look at that bunch of wallys!" And um then of course when I moved away, I didn't really give it too much thought. Fast forward sort of a few years, and it was around the time my dad had a heart attack. Um he's fine, by the way. There was this sort of chain of events that occurred, but the most haunting was A few months after that, I went camping with my husband up in the Scottish Highlands, this little campsite in the middle of fucking nowhere. I mean, I live in the north of England anyway, and we drove for 13 hours. So that's how far north we were. I went meditating down by the waterside. I actually wrote a poem at the time called Passing Place that has a video of it. So, um, you know, if anyone's really interested in seeing it. But I was meditating and out of nowhere, I distinctly heard the words you must open the door and seek that which is seeking you. So I don't know where it came from, but I remember crying like a goon because it was just one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. What kind of a voice was it? It was a very soothing voice. It was like this... um, I don't want to say that I hear voices because I've never heard another voice in my life. Yeah,
2: no, I mean but, I'm curious. Like, is it would it be kind of a, like a male voice or female voice or? It was definitely uh, female. Right. So yeah, I don't know what that was um,
1: whatsoever, but it was probably one of the oddest experiences I've ever had, and it's never been repeated. Um. So I don't know. All
2: right. Thank you. <laughs> no. You've always, as far as I can tell, had a love of spoken word, uh, speaking, and to be fair, helping other people on their kind of journey to that. When did that manifest itself? I think
1: it's because my anxiety disorder often causes me sort of so much pain that I sometimes feel like I don't have a voice or I don't speak. And I know that that's very hard for some people to believe. Right, um, yeah. But so when I get behind the microphone, it's almost like it gives me this permission to speak. It's like a magic wand. And it... I love that. So there,
2: I became... there may be a kind of a power, you know, a sense of power behind the microphone because, you know, your, your voice is being kind of projected. It's being it's louder. Uh, you know, maybe it could be something towards that. Yeah. I've kind
1: of become this entirely different person. It's, it's weird. I don't even know who that is.
2: You wouldn't be ad- adverse to writing lyrics and recording songs, too. Have you always sang? I
1: used to sing um, church music in a church band. Very much buried it when I was living with my ex because I was always sort of made to believe that it was stupid and not good enough. And I've always found this incredible comfort in singing and in music in general. I just think that it's such a beautiful thing to be able to do. And that's why mm, I continue please. to do it.
2: You have a fantastic voice. I've heard it a number of times now. Uh, it is absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Do you enter competitions or anything with, uh, with your music and singing?
1: Not really. I mean, I've entered a couple of sort of
2: low-key online
1: competitions, but
2: I remember one you entered. I think you, I think, geez, I think you got to uh, you. Got through a good few rounds anyway. I remember that. Uh, I think it got it from. I think it was some kind of competition on Facebook. you got it from. Uh, that was maybe five years ago or something.
1: I did actually come second
2: in that competition, oh, out second of um,
1: quite a few thousand, so that made me feel really good.
2: Oh, of course. Of course. But um. it's still not winning, is it? <laughs> it's not as good. Do you go to spoken word in your area?
1: I did a couple of readings earlier in the year in public, and it got this incredible sort of reaction
2: of people
1: which really fueled me to go out and, you know, really want to do this. So I've actually signed up for my first one next week, actually. So I'm kind of scared, but half the battle is just showing up. So I'm really looking forward to it, if not, you know, sort of shitting myself a little bit.
2: OK, at this juncture, we're going to have a little game. It's called How Well Do You Know Your Poetries? Um, So I'll give you some lines from five of your poems and you try and guess the titles. Now, I can tell you, as you probably figured out from listening to the <laughs> last uh, four, it's not as easy as it sounds.
1: No. So,
2: um, I think the record, well, I think Hemi, Hemi kind of got one, uh, two. <laughs> um, so, you two, I, I reckon you have to be Anna Grin and Magdalena. And I think they may have got three or four, one of the other. So, you. Um, I didn't go back mad for well, no, to be totally honest, um, I probably did. So, let's <laughs> have a look. You know the feeling, that sharp, piercing feeling, when your brow wire snaps clean in two.
1: Do you know, I know the poem, and I can't think of the title. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> um, yeah, it. Is it like an ode to boobs or something like that?
2: It's um, kind of, sort of, but not. Not. I couldn't give you the points so now if said that. I can't think what the fuck it's
1: called. No,
2: it's gone. Oh, you're going to kick yourself. Come on. Uh, a brief history. history. Ah, you got it. Okay, fair enough. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. What was it? The music from Countdown. Gotcha.
1: <laughs> it's the pressure. That's what it was.
2: All right, lovely. The first one. <clears throat> when they put my dog to sleep, his life slumped in the corner of his eye, passive and strange.
1: Oh Jesus! Again, I know the poem, and I don't know.
2: I'd like to give you some clues, but I'm not going with it.
1: No, I know, I know the poem. I just can't remember what I called it. I don't know.
2: All right, it was a particularly pissed off poem about, about nothing, nothing in, in particular. About nothing in particular, yeah. All right, all right. It was right over left. You understood. Learned the language of such. Chair groaned with the weight of condemnation. It's something about fists, isn't it? Ah, uh,
1: okay, On. Like, can't
2: As he removed his toy. Yeah. Okay, so that's two wrong, one right. You need really need to get to his last two uh, <laughs> if, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna come away with any kind of sense of uh, winning. There's something in my tinning claret, something in vacancies of all things red. Lacking symmetry to white counterparts, or so they quietly said. Blood work. No? It's blood. I, yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'm
1: oh, there we go. Generous.
2: Uh, yeah, it's blood. All right, so two wrong people. I think if you get this, you're kind of, uh, I think you're in a draw. Right. <laughs> you. Well, what we do at the end of the year is we'll get you all back and uh, have, a, have, a, <laughs> have a poem off. You found me rhetorical Cutting circles into my lyrics With meaning you dare to find In the claustrophobia of loneliness
0: Oh Jesus
2: It's not called Jesus, no Neither was the <laughs> last one or the one before that But you just keep asking No,
1: don't know the one I can't remember Alright <laughs>
2: uh, Cause and effect ah uh, there we go all right so you got two i think you're, uh, you're you're yeah you're up there with hemi how would you describe du to a friend
1: it's kind of a freak show when no one pays you know to see the exhibits really isn't it um yeah that's how i describe it
2: all right um would you recommend it
1: i would recommend it in the sense that it has genuinely helped me grow as a writer has rewarded me with some good friendships but yeah i mean we've started a whole podcast big in the place up so we must like it a little bit you know
2: okay yeah what advice would you give to new members
1: read read and read because it's one of the most successful ways to grow and that and probably don't be a dick which really speaks for itself
2: Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm um Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to the webmas
1: i'd definitely say listen to people when they ask for help purely because they're real people with real lives and might be dealing with more than you know so that's yeah that's what i'd say
2: all right um now all the poems you picked for the show date between 2017 and 2018 why
1: I feel like that time was during my biggest period of growth. It's when I felt like I really grew as a person uh, and as a writer. And I really developed this sense of vulnerability and honesty with myself. And everything before then just didn't really feel as much me as it does now. Um, I've also deleted around 500 of my early poems off, DU. you? I mean, I have them in a personal file, but I just didn't feel like they reflected who i was anymore so i removed them so 2017 2018 are my proudest work so far i think which is why i've stuck to that date range so all right well, i
2: had a feeling that was kind of going to be all oh, right uh, uh, yeah ooh. would you kind of started calling yourself a poet let's say 2017 and 2018 or, or had you already called yourself one but now you're kind of a better one kind of thing
1: yeah i I think people get really, really funny about this whole kind of poet word. They're like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not a poet. I can't call myself a poet. I'm like, well, I am a poet because this is what I do. This is my business. This is what I'm about. So I am completely comfortable calling myself a poet because that's what I am and that's what I do. So I've just just become more comfortable with myself.
2: All right. Um, Can you define poetry?
1: it's that sense of living it's it's finding beauty even in a ship um and that's very much what poetry is for me
2: lovely missy demeanor it's been a huge pleasure doing you um you are an absolute living legend of the deep underground and my oh. humble thanks to you for coming on and talking to me will you read us out with a poem yeah,
1: um, my pleasure and thanks for inviting me onto Legends and making me shit well, myself so. Well, i
2: tell you what, we, last month we had the web miss and, you know, I was thinking how the fuck am I going to, um, how the fuck am I going to put a show together after that? Uh, <laughs> so I suppose the obvious choice uh, after the Queen of the Underground was the Queen of the Podcast. So, um, and again... Uh, I, I wasn't sure whether you do it or not, you know, because you are sometimes a bit of a nervous barrel. Uh, but mm-hmm. that's what I mean. Um, I am very thankful that you came on. Yes, lovely. Um, a poem. I was going to ask for a song, but a poem. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. So this is actually called uh, Rampenzel, and it was inspired by a German friend of mine, who is also a fabulous spoken word poet in his native German. Um, But he taught me this word and it really just summarised everything about my writing journey so far. So, in fact, I use a phrase in here that I really want tattooed on me. So it means a lot. And yeah, it goes like this. Some days I wake and it's just there, rising from my throat like a belligerent God sucking down despair. And I race to the green light having not slept because poetry And I haven't showered because poetry. And I haven't dressed because the words need to fire out like bullets. And there's no place I'd rather be than where I feel just like home. This. This is my house. All of it. Broken, crumbling, desolate. But it's mine nonetheless. Thinking makes it so. The Germans have a beautiful word for this flavour of chaos. Rampenzau. The wild animal of the stage, at home under the spotlight. The puppeteer of the microphone. The slayer of crowds and public spaces. The truth-tellers. The vocal aficionados waking every morning to brush their teeth with poetry. To piss poetry. To shit poetry. Or get off the damn pot. Well... That's an entirely more British expression, but I like to believe our melded flags can teach us the real meaning of what it is to live, to write, to wake up every morning and make your life the poem, bled from veins to sound waves, fearlessly skinned in the real. Deep Underground poetry. <sighs> com.
3: Thank you, Eamon and Missy, for that riveting and revealing conversation, in all its shades of warmth, cheek, and depth. I hope I'm speaking for everyone when I say that closing poem in particular struck a chord in my heart, as it should anyone who is driven to take up the quill. Our ability to make stirring art from the chaotic mess of this life is one of our greatest capacities. It's truly an honor and privilege to be working with you both. Many thanks to Runaway Mind Train for his lovely song, Kissing in the Snow. Keep those songs coming, people. Up next, we get another welcome dose of Missy as she vacates the hot seat and yields it to Wally Roo with our next segment, The Reading List.
1: The Reading List with Missy Demena. So here we are debuting a brand new feature here on the podcast project called the Reading List. And if you're familiar with the concept of desert island discs, it's kind of like that, but with poetry, of course. So we've been asking members about their top three proudest works, what they believe are the poems that they have written that should be in people's reading lists. So in July, we ran a competition to get the very first victim sorry, I mean guest, on the show, and the winner, who has an impressive cabinet of trophies and has been an active member on DUP since July 2012, was Wally WallyRoo92, who has agreed to come and talk to us today with a considerable time difference over in the States. Walter, thanks for joining us. How are you today?
4: I am doing great. How are you, Missy?
1: I'm, I'm good. I've had a nice relaxing day. I'm nice and chilled. I've got a cup of tea. It's lovely.
4: Oh, awesome. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for giving me this opportunity. I feel very very honoured and I feel humbled that I've been picked for this competition. And I also feel a little bit starstruck that I'm talking to you.
1: (laughs) Well, I'd love to say that I reflect that starstruck image, but I'm genuinely sat in my living room with a big cup of tea and a muffin. So (laughs) illusion shattered there, my friend. (laughs) So take us back to the very beginning of it all. I mean, how did you come to join
4: DUP? Uh, how did I join DUP? Well, my story starts back somewhere in the early 2000s. I used to belong to another poetry website called poetrybank.com, and, and it had a very similar format, like the forums and, you know, the, the little ins and outs of it, the, kind of like the way that DUP works. So this was for around maybe 2004, 2005. And then one day, the website went away, and a lot of my poetry and my connection to other poets uh, just kind of disappeared. So for a couple years I was somewhat homeless. There were other websites, but they just, they just didn't appeal to me. So I think it was early 2009 when I had gone back to college to finish my degree in finance, and I still had a, a, a real passion for writing. So when I got back to writing, and um, I was I used to look for the, that old website to see if it would come back up. So one day I googled it, and I found Deep Underground Poetry, and I didn't join right away, so I would come back to it every so often. And I had a lot of material that I had written over the years, but the caliber of writing from the poets at, at DUP was at a new level. So one day I decided to go for it. I joined, and ever since I've been here. Uh, so none of the websites have really had that home feel to it, and the poets here are great. The atmosphere is cool. The poets here have a great range uh, and skills.
1: I must admit, I've been sort of experimenting with other sites over the years and have tried to sort of do in and it just hasn't worked for me for whatever reason. They just they felt so cluttered. I love the community feel to DUP. I think it's really beautiful. So where did the username wallyroo92 come from?
4: Uh, growing up my nickname was Wally uh, and this kind of started all the way back in high school and after that it stuck, stuck for four years. And I graduated back in the 1992, so I've been using Wally Roo 1992 ever since, you know, the internet in the mid, mid-1990s, mid I guess.
1: So, let's start off with your first poem that, if you don't mind, I'm going to read, um, titled Brave New World. Here's to the dreamers and the mouth of babes, who will surely one day inherit the earth. May our sorrow today be their hope tomorrow giving way to enlightenment and rebirth. Here's to those who in our current times are fighting, striving and pushing for change so that it brings a better place for our offspring, offering peace to our spirits in exchange. Here's to the philosophers and the thinkers, to the teacher who helped shape a young mind. They'll pay homage for passing down knowledge with the commitment that it will be shared in kind. Here's to those who are caring for the sick, looking for a cure and to help them heal, and to those who volunteer their time, who feed the hungry one more meal. Here's to the farmers and workers in the fields. Here's to stargazers looking up at the night sky. Here's to star-crossed lovers longing for the day. May their dreams come closer when they sigh. If education is to be the fundamental goal, maybe then our true potential can be achieved. With love, sympathy and understanding, the wisdom of the ages will be received. It won't be an easy road, and it's not perfect, but with faith and patience it can be unfurled. Maybe then our children will be free and happy. Here's to you, dreamers of a brave new world. Now, it's a beautiful poem, and the overwhelming message of this poem seems to be one of hope. Is this what you hope to communicate through this poem?
4: Yes, it was certainly a message for hope and faith. Brave New World was uh, my last entry for this year's National Poetry Writing Month challenge back in April, 2019. I wrote ideas all month long, but I wanted something to really reach out to others and have that optimism, a positive outlook on life, regardless of the troubled times we're seeing around the world today. Uh, Everything that is currently happening, how the news chooses to cover the negative, the pain and suffering, it seems to overshadow the good in the world. And I wanted a message to convey that idea that we can do better, that we can give a little bit of ourselves, and that in turn can be rewarding. If we choose to focus on the good, then we should be able to see more of the positive things that happen around us. One morning as I was taking my uh, 14-year-old out to school, he asked me, did we really mess up the world and are we going to have anything left? I told him that there are good and bad people, but that greed can drive those around it can really drive those in power crazy, and they, and they make a lot of decisions that make that affect most of us. Uh, governments pass laws, and the, you know now the planet's suffering. You know, and so when he asked me that question, I, I really thought about you know what about those that fight for the environment, those professions that you know help people, those individuals that give their time to fight for for a cause. Mm-hmm. And overall, I think that poem was much my thank you to those who do so much without the recognition that they are the ones that should be praised.
1: I mean, it's really hard to stick to a rhyme scheme, but you've successfully kept this throughout the poem, which really isn't easy to do, which I kind of know from my own experience. But in fact, all three pieces that we're talking about today have some sort of rhyme within them. I mean, how do you feel about rhyme as a whole? Do you think rhyme is still relevant in this age of poetry or has it become... A bit of a cliche almost.
4: I mean, I'm certainly a fan of rhyme, but it has to be done correctly and with the proper flow. Uh, growing up, I used to spend hours just looking up random words in a dictionary and a thesaurus. So I grew up listening to jazz, rap, and rock, but lyrics and music had really a great influence on me. So when I structure a poem, I like to go with a basic rhyme scheme, maybe C, B, or A, B, A, B. Uh, but I make sure I don't want to lose the, measures, the message or the original idea just for the sake of rhyming. If the poem is not too serious, I try to have fun with it and make it sound cool. But sometimes I feel that energy and I think that the internal rhyme stress that point. Um, I also mm-hmm. like to use wordplay and certain hidden messages and meanings and using assonance so that it could almost become almost like a tongue twister. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read many wonderful poems, both here from my library at home and, and here at DUP. Some of the most powerful poems have no rhymes and they relay a strong emotion that I'm often left in amazement. Sometimes I try to write pieces without rhyme, but out of habit, I stray into that rhyming direction, but I attempt to have a wider variety of styles and approaches, but rhyming can sometimes have a, a, a bad effect if it's not done right. I don't know if it's become a cliche, but I, I just think it should be used properly. It's kind of like putting too much salt on your steak if you're, or too much sugar on your lemonade <laughs> I, I mean, I've watched poetry slam videos where the poet used, overused the, the Sean rhyme, like conversation, subjugation, and it just felt a little awkward with all 40 lines of the poem used it. Rhyme should be like a different seasoning, sprinkle sprinkle it here and there in different parts so the reader can, the reader can really savor the poem and its meaning.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's fair to say that this poem is about the everyday human being living their everyday life. I mean, is this something that has influenced your poetry, as in the marvellous everyday rather than grandeur, so to speak?
4: Yeah, I think this poem is about the average person who does wonderful things and how they can impact others. For example, teachers and the professors uh, who had a big influence on me over the years. Uh, A few weeks ago, if not a couple of months ago, a doctor saved my wife's life. Uh, That rhyme wasn't intended, by the way, Uh, (laughs) because when she went under the knife... um, we put our trust in these medical doctors to help her. We put our trust in the nurses and the staff that helped her heal. Uh, now we put our trust into everyday things: the people who build our cars, the architects who design our homes, the farmers who pick our foods, you know, teachers who look after our children, the city workers who fix our city streets. You, you know, there's so many thoughts, so many jobs and careers out there that affect us all in some way. So in a way, we're all symbiotic and we're all connected somehow through our jobs, through our interactions, from the products that we consume to the words we say to each other when we post on social media and and on the Internet.
1: I mean, I know that you previously mentioned about your 14 year old asking about, you know, what you've done to the world. But does this poem directly reflect your vision of how you personally see the world?
4: Uh, it's, it's almost like a two-way street. you know. There's people that fight for, for the planet and there's people that damage the planet. And I'd like to think that there's a lot of positivity out there that we are doing something. We are you know, looking into ways to improve the world. And those are the ones that I, I believe are fighting for that brave new world. Lately, I've been a little bit more optimistic um, because I, I have a great job uh, here that helps a lot of young people reach their educational goals. So I have a loving and a health, I have a loving, healthy family and friends who I connect with almost every day through social media, and and, and I feel I've surrounded myself with more uh, of positive and influential uh, people, and that gives me a better perspective on the world. Uh, like I said, there's good and bad, but the media tends to cover a lot of more of negative aspects. You know, like what you see in politics, drugs, crime, and just to name a few. Uh, but there's a lot of good things happening out there every day, and I just think we need to know where to find it where to look for it and where to find it yeah i I mean i i feel like even though there's a lot of negativity i tend to look for more for more of the positive things
1: that's a good outlook to have on life because the world is pretty crazy right now i don't know about (laughs) you
4: but (laughs) oh yes it is everywhere
1: so yeah moving on to your second poem um would you like to share that with us
4: uh sure So the second poem that I submitted is called Through My Glass Um, Darkly. My perception has been off ever since, well, I really can't remember when. My views were skewed from the beginning. I guess that's why I rely on my pen. And yet, I've been pessimistic, artistic, and mildly autistic. What I thought I understood wasn't always the case. I've faced situations with selfishness, unaware of the consequences when my senses weren't in place. But... Many a time I've been absorbed in my own world without focus or drive to get to where I should go. Instead, I lay there lazily as the day strayed crazily until I realized I was being carried away by the undertow. No, I will not go into that despair, that crippling nightmare, that impasse and mass without a sense of direction. Not at my age, not at this stage in my life and career. In the mirror, I'll have the biggest and hardest reflection. Yes, my past makes me who I am today, but it doesn't dictate the road ahead of me or the choices I'm going to make, for therein lies the truth. Gone are the days of my youth, but I still define and decide the pathways I'm going to take.
1: You have a good reading voice. You should read more.
0: (laughs) Thank you. There
1: you go. I mean, I took this as another positive poem, and it's almost a direct reflection of the first that. I believe. It's interesting that the title mentions darkness, but the poem feels very positive. I mean, did you mean for this juxtaposition to be reflected in your poem?
4: Oh, yes, actually, because this is a very personal poem. Um, I took the title from the passage of the Bible, uh, sort of relating it to myself looking through a, a mirror. And looking back, I understand myself a little bit more for the choices I made. As a younger man, I didn't fully comprehend how my attitude also affected others. And that in turn, it showed how I was was really, I wasn't fully aware of my behavior.
0: Mm.
1: I mean, I was drawn to the stanza, you've got many a time I've been absorbed in my own world without focus or drive to get to where I should go. Instead, I've laid there lazily as the days strayed crazily until I realized I was being carried away by the undertone. Now, it's interesting that this stanza not only describes your state of mind, but also the whole poetic experience, I think. I mean, I tell this story often, but a few years ago, I went to visit the grave of Sylvia Plath, which is in a little graveyard in this really odd little village called Heppleston in Yorkshire. And as we left um, the graveyard, there was uh, the grave of another lesser known poet, Asa Benveniste, which had as an epitaph on the stone, foolish enough to have been a poet, which I want to steal, if I'm honest. And that sentiment just ties in beautifully with the theme of this stanza. I mean, what is your relationship with writing? Because you've obviously
4: made a connection with it in this piece. Well, I I often thought that poetry has been my therapy, a chronicle of my experiences and emotions throughout the years. Here I can take my time to fully express slowly. I express myself a little bit more slowly and more accurately, searching for the right words. When I was growing up, I had a bit of a stutter, and I still kind of do. So I felt really shy around others. So when I was a teenager and I went girl crazy, uh, poetry was the best way to express myself. So if I was going through a difficult time, I would go home and write what I felt, trying to figure out why I was feeling so frustrated or angry or whatever I was feeling at that that time. So uh, a few months later, I would go back and read what I wrote, and I began to see myself in a different way. So... Uh, I was mostly reactive and remained reactive well into my 30s until I had to wake up and say to myself, I'm being carried away by this undertow. Um, That's how life was passing me by.
1: I think our teenage years um, have taught us a lot about ourselves, to be honest. I think they were were some pretty interesting days.
4: Those were awkward years. Yes, they were.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, your poems and this one also are really quite heavily punctuated. Um, How do you feel about punctuation? Because it's a little bit of a hot topic. I mean, do you feel it has to be perfect or do you have a more relaxed approach?
4: Well, um, English is my second language. So when I I came to the States when I was nine and within a year I was uh, speaking English fluently, Writing, however, was another challenge. My uh, native Spanish has a lot of grammar and punctuation. So when I began to read and write more in English, I I think I tend to overuse it. Uh, By the time I was in college, I felt I excelled at writing papers. So uh, I think I did great in creative writing courses, but like old habits, I noticed noticed that I used a lot of punctuation. And I think I used it for pausing and dramatic spec. So, but punctuation like rhyme it should also be done properly because it, it really makes a poem better or worse uh, however poetry has such a diverse interpretation that we sometimes don't know what the poet is thinking as a former drummer I visualize stanzas as bars with beats and the beats broken into rudiments like uh, syllable counts similar to how rappers break down their delivery so by inserting a comma that shouldn't really be there I think of it as a slight pause within the line to give it that effect it's something I've I know I've used a lot I need to work a lot on and that I'll be reading more in the near future. One of the fellow poets, one of my favorite poets here in DUP, Joshua, recommended the book The Old List Travel by Stephen Fry. And, you know, if I want to become a better writer, I really have to invest more in more time in writing books and writing course and courses.
1: It's really cheered me up to hear that because um, I'm a bit of a musician myself and Oh of course. Cool. I adore drumming, and I actually play, play um, Irish drum, the Balram. Um, oh, okay. So I love the correlation that you've mentioned between poetry and drumming, and I think a lot of people don't actually realise that, that poetry and music are very similar, and I
0: think maybe mm-hmm. that's
1: why spoken word appeals to me so much, because you get to harness yes, that beat into something audible, and I just love how different skills can become intertwined. So thank you very much for highlighting that because it's actually <laughs> made my day.
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you, you've also, you're, you're part of that, uh, that genre that understands the delivery and, and the rhythm of, of poetry. Because sometimes we, when we read a poem just by sight, we don't know if there's a, there's a certain rhythm to it or the way that the emotions are being uh, relayed, uh, you know, just by reading it. But when you hear the spoken words, you really feel the connection with it between the audience and the poet and thinking, okay, this is a much better poem spoken than, the, than it's read.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and it's an art form, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. So I can really, really appreciate that. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so moving on to your third and final poem, um, would you like to share that with us? Sure.
4: So this next poem is called uh, Unbroken. And this this is actually one of the last um, pieces that I committed to memory. Uh, one of the few poems that I just know by you know by heart. Okay. And I wrote this back in I wrote this back in 2015. And it goes, I'm broken, fractured in the place underneath the core, where the structure of existence and foundation lie, where the texture of abstract thought has torn. It's the face with faith and creed are shaken, reveling the freedom what the revelation brought, wrought ceaselessly by the eons of perilous times, when then the vague and fetal plans have come to naught. It's the sinister, sinister void of all reason and purpose, the rupture in the framework of the mind, slivering away, slowly coming in, unreeling, until all the unholy fears are lived and wholly realized. Conflicted amid the ruins of lust and judgment, at the sight where revelation has lost its drive, I'm frayed deep within the heart and spirit that I love and know all of it at the same time. But still I strive to mend my errand ways, trying to make some sense of it all, reticent and remorseful for the wasted days withered away in shattered pieces that took their toll. And yet, the more I ponder, the more I become flawed, the facade of phantom memories remain unspoken, like gods and monsters at the table, patiently awaiting for the tipping point, unbalanced, where I am broken.
1: Gods and monsters... Now, this poem feels a lot darker than the previous two offerings with some seriously heavy wording like gods and monsters and phantom memory, shaken faith and utter futility. Is the dark category something that you regularly frequent on D? Uh,
4: Not really. The dark category is something that I visit from time to time because it really depends where I am emotionally in life. Although I wrote this piece uh, four or five years ago, it was really something about a much younger me, and how everything in life seemed unbalanced at the time. Uh, at the same time, I think I was—I wanted to connect with others who have been, who are currently going through maybe difficult situations, uh, where we've all felt sad, depressed, or broken in a sense, with no idea how to get out of it. Uh, going back to my reactive tendencies, I, I made many decisions in anger that led to destructive behaviors, and of course, nothing good—nothing good came out of it. So when I reminisce reminisce and read pieces of my old self, I see how I was fractured from an early age. Uh, During my country's civil war, I saw horrible things as a child that I kept to myself. And I held a lot of anger inside me that would from time to time explode. So I was depressed for years, not really knowing why or that facade, that mask, it just kept me feeling numb. But I believe this could be a message, message to others who are currently going through a difficult time. Uh, There's hope and it does get better life is full of many wonderful things, but too often we're wallowing in our own pain We forget to live for the positive things
1: And I think I just connected to that on a human level and especially with the line that you've got here I'm frayed deep within the heart and spirit that I love and loathe all of it at the same time Which for me seems to define the human experience I mean, considering this is the line that triggered the most emotional response from myself as a reader, how important do you believe reader connection is to your pieces?
4: I, I think connecting with someone has always been a major point for me. Um, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever had a, a brief conversation with a stranger and, and you say that person gets me. We all have experiences, some very similar to others, that, that, that's what connects us. Uh, I have family and friends with children who have special needs, and when they join groups and become friends with parents who have children just like theirs, they find that supporting connection. It's a wonderful feeling when you, when someone says to you, I know how you feel, or I know how i felt this before. And I think that's what poetry has done for me. Uh, many times I've read poetry here on Deep Underground that exemplifies that connection. Another poet who puts something into words that I've often thought or felt. Uh, poetry just doesn't express ourselves, our deepest thoughts, but it links us all together as writers.
1: So do you write for yourself or are you conscious of your audience when you write?
4: (laughs) Well, I I think I do both. Uh, There are times when a piece is very dear to me and it resonates with the reader and it makes me feel very happy. Then there are times I just want to write something that's entertaining or funny or, or maybe inspirational Sometimes I just want to tell a story about, or, or a history, or a personal account. But then again, I think poetry is always the conscious of the reader. Uh, we write so that others can read about us, and it's also important to know who, are, who, are, who we are writing for. I mean, I can write a piece about uh, a, uh, about something about classical music that affects that affects me deeply. Uh, but if the reader doesn't know about Stravinsky's fire, Firebird, for example, uh, well, then the reader has will not associate with you know with that piece of music uh but i can maybe raise curiosity about classical music with some folks uh and I, I just think that you know somehow we we were able to make that connection but poetry can do that i mean i can write about something that's dull and make it sound very exciting or you know cool
1: well you certainly do that because <laughs> i've often been a looked up things that you might have written about just to and I think that's the good thing about the author's notes that we have now is that Peace. you're able to to write at the bottom and and delve deeper into it, so yes it's fantastic. I believe that this is definitely my favorite of the three that you've uh, oh. read today. Thank you <laughs> but what what is it that made you want to discuss this poem uh today that that really makes it stand out for you?
4: To give anyone or anybody who is down under luck a bit of hope. Uh, the first two poems are the result of the optimism that comes from the hard times. Suffering makes us stronger. Dealing with difficulties lets us grow. Uh, we all have our demons. We all have our constant fights. Uh, there are, there may be others just like you and I who have had similar experiences and who have gone through worse. But I think we're all been broken at one time or another. And I just want—I want them to know that there's there's hope.
1: Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, we're all on this human journey together, so it's really yes. great that yes. we can lift each other up like that. Yes. Well, Walter, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, may I say what a privilege it was to be able to talk to you a little bit, and congratulations for winning the competition. Oh, thank and, you. <laughs> Uh, hopefully we haven't traumatized you too much (laughs) and uh, yeah you are you're a very active member on the du and of course du is lucky to have you
4: well i I feel very lucky to you know be part of this community i mean it's i mean dup is is really really cool and i want to thank you missy for having me uh you know deep underground has been a very influential part of my creative writing uh, these last few years i find a lot of inspiration and positive people here and though I do have a regular job and, and every opportunity that I get, I go in there and read. I, I, I'm really trying to hone in on my craft and connect with folks who are either just starting or they're skyrocketing skyrocketing to stardom. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's, for me, it's been an honor to have been given this chance and talk about my work. But I just want to say to other deep underground poets, don't stop writing. Let your friends and family know about deep underground poetry because it's really it really is a community that brings people together
1: any uh, recommendations before you go like who should we read who's
4: your favorites okay so uh, obviously that lady with the tiger Miss J Pandora (laughs) Uh, when when she posts things I'm like I'm wondering okay where is she getting this from Uh, one of my other personal favorites is Josh Uh, uh, the guy just seems to connect with nature, and, and, and the way he reflects on his uh, on, on work, and I just admire I admire his his delivery. I I, I got several others them off the top of my head that I just can't uh, bring myself to um, put their names out there. Uh, but how functionals one uh, year one, uh, it, it's just there's so many of them out there that. I feel bad because I don't get to read as much poetry as I would like to because again I'm I'm working uh, you know long hours at work but that when I want to sit down and just spend a couple of hours that I'll get to read some of these folks on my and you can go to my reading list or to my or, or to my my favorite poets uh, that I feel a connection with them whether they're posting anything from random things about life to the highly erotic or just to the the fun stuff that just happens happens in everyday life that i i get to enjoy their work you know whenever i want
1: well thank you very much for talking to us today and you've been a wonderful guest
4: thank you missy take care
1: deep underground poetry dot com and that was WallyRoo92 there, bravely being our wonderful first guest for the reading list and a fascinating person he was to speak to too. Many thanks to Walter for taking part. If you would like to come onto the show and have your poetry featured on the reading list, please, please just get in touch either by DUP private message or you can email undergroundoutloud at outlook.com. Coming up next, we have Daniel spotlighting the Royal Tigress of the Underground, Jade Pandora. So please refill your coffee cup, sit back because you deserve that extra 15 minutes, and enjoy the spotlight next on the Poetcast project.
0: Spotlight
3: With Daniel
1: Christensen.
3: Hello again, everyone with a listening ear bent in our direction, out there in the wide world. Which is, truly, in relationship to the known universe, a very tiny raindrop in a great and vast star ocean. I have often, in melancholic moments, thought of the world as an oubliette, a prison without walls, and the selection I have chosen to read and review for you today reminds me very much of that stark concept. It comes from a terrible chapter in the life of one of our own and treasured friends, and fellow wielders of the pen, Jade Pandora. If you are unfamiliar, Jady is a prodigious presence on the DU, whose eloquence of language, adroit usage of form, and range of idiom has made her a prolific winner of writing competitions. In personal correspondence I have found her a warm and genial soul. So. I am pleased and privileged to read for you her poem of five chilling chapters, titled Asylum. 1. No Recall I didn't see or feel or hear it coming, and then I came to after the annihilation of all I thought I knew, once I tumbled down the rabbit hole. 2 morning glories. The whispers of clean linen float across narrow beds of brutality, and reflections of a summer's early morning, as melodic rapid chatter of tagalog plays through the halls, while pairs of girls in their scrubs disappear into recessed rooms, to the sound of greetings weaving between a woman's cries of pain. Three. Under the snow. Triple digits of the season. Pass week after week outside. Unnoticed by those doing time. This asylum with arctic air. Who are they kidding? I've been here long enough to know. I actually died that day. And this? This is my hell. Hell is not fire and brimstone. It's a parallel world from which no locks exist, yet no escape to return to where you came from. Patience, whose eyes you look into, and no one is there. It's where all fear goes at night. Their voices are heard through the walls, but those with their vacant stares that I cannot penetrate have their truths, forever frozen in time, in cages where they walk in place. The cold, numb hands and feet and thoughts, but I feel alive because of it, like a mouse foraging under the snow while an owl listens above. I know the pounce will come, through the snow at any moment, bathing me with morning light, as owl talons sever my breath. 4. Night terrors by day. Sooner or later it would come. A widespread power outage hit just before dusk with its heat, just as dinner was being served. I had learned to live on scant fare, being a diabetic and having only one kidney. My weight loss, lost in my blue gowns. I was restless and felt cold air, As I walked with my cane to the hall, aqua socks with tread on my feet, toward the nurse's station. Thick orange extensions snaked everywhere, and the regulars emerged to sit in their wheelchairs, to watch while I sat with ice water. But all the hustle and bustle would agitate some patients, making them unpredictable, while staff was racing all about. There was an old man known for being loud and most disagreeable. He wanted out of his wheelchair, to go where he wanted, right? Nurses would stop to secure him as he protested and cursed. The regs who knew him rolled their eyes. I continued to sip my ice water. Then I noticed the white-haired lady I was chatting with was looking up, and said softly, He's behind you. I stiffened and hunched my shoulders. I tilted my head just enough to see the old man, his gnarly hands gripping the backrest of my chair, glaring down at me with eyes bulging. Get out of my way, came the frost. I bent lower against the chill. I'm sorry, I'm not in my wheelchair, being stranded in a stiff wooden one. I felt the spray of his spittle on the back of my hand holding the cup. "'I don't give a goddamn,' came the blast. "'Get on the floor and crawl out of the way.'" 5. No one will know. Every evening, the asylum gives up its creatures of the night, the stalkers who haunt the halls, who try all the doors to get in or out, and homeless creatures on two legs who I would often walk in on, using the toilet meant for me, and watch the TV while I slept. But no, in that place I could never sleep. I used to be nocturnal years ago, but all I could do now was listen to the jungle cries and siren calls. I'd stagger out to the empty lobby, hearing a man far off in his room calling out for someone to please, Dear God, take me home. The man in the next room in bed A hollered out from the open door, Ah, shut the fuck up! And I screamed, You shut the fuck up! Once I was back in bed, that same voice, as all slept while I laid awake, plodding, said, Hey, give me some more Demerol. Don't worry. No one will know. My first impression was incredible, the depth of it, the subtle usage of language and expression, shades of emotion and stark picture the descriptions paint, so surreal and yet so human. It impacts me much like my early readings of Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov, the desperate, aching humanity. There are walls within walls, prisons within prisons. A person under any circumstances can be imprisoned by their own mind, by a fixation upon some past trauma. A chilling aspect of the psyche, Jade details where she says, But those with their vacant stares, that I can't penetrate, have their truths, forever frozen in time, in cages where they walk in place. In the first chapter, Jade opens the piece in a powerfully relatable emotional place. No recall. To awaken into a suddenly alien environment, calling it so poignantly the annihilation of all I thought I knew, where all comfort of familiarity has been stripped away, leaving us cold, barren, and exposed to the ravages of a hostile environment. Down the rabbit hole, is an effective allusion to draw, a descent into a dystopian landscape. Displaying her terrific, honed skill, the second chapter moves into some intimate detail of the environment, as she orients to this new reality. Clean linens whisper across beds of brutality, an immediate image of the grotesque contradictions of the nightmarish landscape she finds herself ensconced within. A melodic, rapid chatter of Tagalog, greetings weaving between a woman's cries of pain, closing the scene with this haunting image of the benumbed clinical environment. The third chapter holds the passage of time, distorted by the isolation of the asylum, arctic air outside, indistinguishable from the constant cold of the facility. Hell is not fire and brimstone. It's a parallel world from which no locks exist, yet no escape to return to where you came from. A perfect description, both of the concept of the oubliette I mentioned earlier and the metaphorical prison of the mind, those afflicted find themselves within. Forever frozen in time, in cages where they walk in place. In the closing two stanzas, Jade brings us the shimmering image of her presence and struggle in this frozen Niflheim. The palpable gravity and tension in her metaphor of feeling like a mouse burrowing under the snow with a stalking owl, waiting to burst from the unknown at any moment. In the fourth chapter, Jade moves with the harmony of music into a crescendo, following these chapters of stillness, which built the tension, into this explosion of activity. The power outage, frenzy of staff, and agitation this caused among the patients, like a beehive falling from the relative tranquility of its lofty perch in a tree, now lying cracked and swarming with hysteria. Weight loss, lost in her blue gowns, sipping ice water, approached by this raving madman, these details cause my heart to ache, perfectly rendered with impact and economy. The fifth chapter is perfectly crafted to signal a conclusion, with its details of a tired cycle of days, of unglued time as they continue within the walls of this purgatory, this place of the lost and damned. Its title, No One Will Know, seems to me a powerful double entendre. It has its literal meaning in the lunacy of the screaming man who then slyly asks for some Demerol. Also, it conveys this sense of the detachment of the realm of the suffering and those who blithely go about their care, the absence of warmth and compassion that permeates the environment. No one will know. No one cares to know what befalls those who have been shunted to the outside of regular society. On the whole, I find this to be a masterpiece of writing, having all the elements of subtlety, emphasis, flow, suspense, proportion, precision, vivid and stark detail, touching into depths of haunting contemplation and profound emotion. I hope you've enjoyed this installment of a Spotlight on Poetry. Tis my continual honor to present it to you, but more so, to bring these works of art and the amazing artists that birthed them to your attention. I hope you'll read this amazing poem for yourself and check out the further works of our talented Jade Pandora. Until then, scribble well, and may we meet again in the fullness of time. Deep Underground
0: Poetry
5: these words, void of passion, a sudden shift and shortfall into the abyss of mediocrity. Juliet lay naked on the altar. She pretended to be asleep or dead. I couldn't tell the difference. I laughed nervously to myself, too old to play this game, called murder in the dark. Leaned down by her side, respectfully dressed, her body bent and dull like a silver spoon. I placed my lips against her neck, cupped her breast in my palm, her nipples embossed, my fingertips red, she was cold or horny. I couldn't tell the difference anymore. Confused by the flutter of hearts, airborne, with wings of worship, she wasn't my breed. There was a catch. Number 22. Juliet never asked, I never told. She found out eventually that the potion she mistook for love was the same poison that put her to sleep. Either way, in time, romance would meet with tragedy. I'm a fighter, not a poet. Romeo, echo, papa, echo, alpha, tango. I'm a fighter, not a poet. Breathe these words over and over, running my course along the beach toward a stone wall. I step back into the ring to exchange my iron heart for heavy fists, gloves to cheek, the crack of leather against skin, cartilage and bone, timed perfectly to the hook and beat one-two. I will beat down every man who's done her wrong. Watch glorious red poems spray over sweaty torsos, smugness smeared from the cocky face of a boxer dancing with his shadow. It's too simple to condemn desire, to feast or be eaten, to be fucked or to make love. I am ingrained with the urge to breed, part man and part animal, which half was real and true. She couldn't tell the difference anymore. No one knows the mess of me. The mess of love. Strewn along trails of clothes. Left abandoned on the floor. No one knows. The holes punched in my heart. Bleed for Juliet.
1: 28 there with his incredible audio poem Romeo, Alpha, Male and Juliet, which if you haven't seen the visual video for this poem, I encourage you to check it out on the DU. Links to all poets featured in the show will be listed in the show notes. My thanks goes out to Case 28, Runaway Mind Train, Jade Pandora and Wally roo 92 for allowing us to feature your excellent work on the show. I think I've recovered from my last minute interview there. And I think I need to stress how last minute that interview was. (laughs) But we got there. So, Eamon, how was it for you?
2: Well, yeah, that's more or less about it for the show. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we've enjoyed making it. Certainly, uh, Missy, (laughs) you were put a bit on on the spot there, all right. But lovely. Thanks very much for doing it. Daniel.
3: Well, thanks for uh, listening again, folks. And uh, we bid you much ado. And we'll see you around the shop.
1: So. Earlier in the month, we hosted the forum competition as Summer Memories Fade. And the winner of that competition was none other than Buddy Dog with their poem Summer in Memphis. So reading this poem out for us today is the very lovely Magdalena on behalf of Buddy Dog. Until next time, guys.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye now. Good boy.
6: I was leaving the beer line when she bumped into me had one in each hand spilling bud light on her deaf leopard tea I said excuse me ma'am can I buy you a beer she said that would be nice but that's not why I'm here as she grabbed me by the hand I was chilling in a beach chair as the sun came out Smoke filled the air While she danced in that Memphis mud The band played their last song I smiled and said How about that beer? She said That would be nice But that's not why I'm here As she grabbed me by the hand We were sitting by the fountain As those ducks came in I could see it in her eye So I said goodbye. She leaned in and whispered, that's not why I'm here. She let go of my hand, gave me that Georgia smile. She said, don't worry, I'll be back next year. As I watched her walk away, all I could think about, how she, she blew me away like a Memphis storm in May. We danced in the rain while the band played on, we slept in the mud, sat there for a while, then I brushed her hair back, she kissed me with that Georgia smile.